fly around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop 'em black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. Today, we are setting the table with mineral water straight out of the earth of Tennessee. Newmarket, Tennessee, in fact, and our featured topic is Houston's Mineral Well, owned and operated by third-generation W.C. Houston. He goes by Bill Houston, and this well was dug by his grandfather after a vision in a dream in a miracle curing of his health ailment. This mineral well is a treasured watering hole for the community. You might also know Bill Houston from his work as professor of art at Carson Newman University for over 40 years and his fantastic paintings specializing in Tennessee landscapes. And Fred Sausman's potluck radio series features an obscure sausage called Sautisa made by Waldensians in Valdez, North Carolina. Thank you so much for tuning in here today by podcast or by the radio dial. I really, really appreciate your good company. So let's go to Newmarket, Tennessee, and hear about this mineral well from owner and operator Bill Houston. My grandfather, we're now in my grandfather's old store, which I converted into a apartment and a living quarters and an art studio back about 20 years ago. But uh, my grandfather used this as a general store and it was also the bus station in Newmarket. And the front part of it was the bus station and you come in to get a ticket and all that and they had these all these chairs and a coke machine and a big rack with laced potato chips and a big glass thing that had Tom's peanut log rolls in it. and. Uh, they put out a flag if they had somebody that wanted to go either to Asheville or to Knoxville. People would get a bus ticket, and it was about, I think it ran 55 cents to go to Knoxville. And uh, that was a lot of money for some people. But uh, it was also kind of a, uh, the equivalent, when I was a child, of what a convenience store is now, in which they just had 
uh, immediate things that a person would want. And But when my grandfather ran it up until probably the early 1950s, it was more like a country general store, and they sold everything. And uh, this particular second floor where we're seated now, there were books and magazines and there were uh, housewares and glasses and forks and spoons and dishes and plates and tablecloths and napkins and all, it was all on these huge big tables that just went the length of the building. They sold phonograph records, they sold phonograph needles, they sold shoes, they sold everything and it was all here on this second floor. That was all kind of closed down after my grandfather died. He built this building in 1922 and he handmade all of the concrete blocks from a machine that he ordered from Sears Roebuck. And they would mix concrete by hand and put it in a mold and pull this big lever and it would squish it down into this mold and it would uh, the mold would then come apart and they would then slide them down and they could make about 10 or 12 concrete blocks a day. So he made all of these concrete blocks anticipating that he was going to build this uh, building. He originally started out uh, as a telegrapher for the Southern Railways and he lived in Wataga and he came down here and he got a job with Southern Railways and he operated the telegraph and uh, sent uh, Western Union messages up and down the line and also would send info to the other um, uh, trains as to what was happening and all of that. And uh, he got, he was an incredibly bright guy and he made enough money that he invested into an open pit zinc mine and it was a big hit. And they used to have mules and guys with picks and shovels uh, mining zinc. And he and a, three or four other guys were in together and my grandfather saw the fact that it might play out and they might need to go underground and he didn't want to really have anything to do with that. And so he sold his part of the zinc mine and was able to invest the money in whatever it took to build this building. And so that's just kind of long stretched out kind of a uh, origin here. But in the late 1920s and early 1930s, he started having terrible kidney problems. And he went to a doctor and in 1929-30, there was very little that you could do with kidney problems. And there were some things. And they restricted his diet and all of this. And he was, uh, gave him laudanum to take for the pain, paragoric and laudanum. And he was in a lot of pain. And uh, they diagnosed it to be very, very severe and operable kidney stones. And they were just really, really agonizing. And... Uh, he thought he was going to die from them, and he probably would have. Uh, he had a dream one night, and in this dream, he said that he had a vision in which there was a voice, but his sister said that he saw an angel, and his son said that he just heard a voice. But uh, he had this incredibly profound and very uh, real dream. And the next morning, he put a stick in the ground and said, we have to drill a well to this depth of 252 feet here. And they all thought he was nuts. And uh, next thing you know, there's a well drilling crew here. 
they're setting up the thing and they're drilling. And uh, they hit water twice on the way down. I think once at about 90 feet, another one at about 150 feet, but because it wasn't at 252 feet, which he was told in the dream, they poured concrete down into the uh, shaft around a pipe and then drilled through the center of the pipe again and kept going. And at 252 feet, they hit water. And it was crystal clear and came out and like this, the neighbor said it sounded like a, a cannon going off. He said it was a, a big whoomp sound. And uh, there was a, a pressure and they started pumping the water and it just from the very first seconds it was crystal clear. Generally they would have to pump for days because it would be full of sand and mud and all sorts of things. And so he started drinking the water. And in about six weeks he went back to the doctor and there was no sign of any of the kidney problems. And he had dissolved and passed the kidney stones and he thought this was just a miracle and so he started giving this water away to anybody that wanted it. And so uh, the rumor got around that it cured kidney problems. And so he would uh, get empty glass bottles and fill it up and he would take it to people or get his son to take it to people. They drink, they'd feel better. And so word got around and there was this uh, extraordinary guy named Lloyd Cunningham who was an African-American guy that worked for my grandfather and worked as a stock um, uh, clerk in the store. And he would put, they had these incredibly high shelves and have climb ladders and get cans down off of it and all that. And he would fill these uh, orders that people would have in cardboard boxes and stuff and they would take it to your house. They'd make deliveries. And it got to the point where there were so many people coming and wanting water and he would have to go out and operate the pump that my grandfather couldn't use him in the in the store anymore and so he had to actually be out there pumping water all the time and so even though Mr. Cunningham had a job working part-time on the Southern Railway uh, at the depot and working part-time for my grandfather he made more money in a day from tips pumping water than he made in his salary job so he quit his salary jobs and started doing that the whole time well anyway uh, word got around that it had these curative properties. And so my grandfather built a, again, a concrete block building, which still stands, around the well and installed an electric pump. And they could just shut it on and pump water and then shut it back off. And uh, it got to be very popular. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and today we're visiting with W.C. Houston, or he goes by Bill Houston, third generation owner and operator of Houston's Mineral Well, located in Newmarket, Tennessee. And uh, some men from Knoxville that ran a branch of the Rexall Drug Company came down here and tried to buy it. And he says it's not for sale. They kept pressing him, and he got the idea while they were talking to him that he could sell the water. Well, since he worked in the trade of, you know, whatever you would want to sell in a store, he was very good friends with the Coca-Cola man. And the Coca-Cola man told him fountain syrup Coca-Cola that they used to make, syrup fountain drugstore drinks, which you'd have a couple of squirts of Coca-Cola and some carbonated water, you would uh, 
get that, and it came from this super concentrated Coca-Cola syrup. And when the bottles were empty, they were just thrown out. And my grandfather, being brilliant the way he was, got the idea that he would buy these empty Coca-Cola bottles, bring them back here. They were incredibly durable, beautiful bottles. And we'd bring them back here and he would fill them full of hydrochloric acid and burn the sugar out that was uh, deposits and residue inside and wash them out incredibly thoroughly, put a brand new cap on it and his own label. And it was Houston's mineral water. And he would advertise in newspapers all over the country that it cured certain diseases of which it would be kidney stones and gallstones and diabetes and arthritis and, and, and uh, uh, laziness and, and mental <laughs> lapses and all these different things. And there was this enormous list, dyspepsia, I remember was one of them. And, you know, uh, stomach problems, uh, ulcers of all different types, uh, indigestion, all sorts of things. And because he would have people that would come and get it and they would say, I've been having this problem all my life and don't have it anymore. So there was no scientific evidence that this did anything. He, but he thought, well, of course it does that. You know, it's really great water. Mm-hmm. And so he would advertise. Well, my grandfather probably knew that the Federal Food and Drug uh, Act of 1917 uh, was in effect, but he ran afoul of it in 1945, and the government took him to federal court because he had claimed that this water cured these diseases. And there was a law written because of all of these people that sold just a bottle of water for you know snake oil, whatever, and it would cure different things. There was a law that said that water cannot be, cannot be advertised or claims made that it cures any kind of disease. And so they took him to court in Cincinnati and he got a lawyer and he was up there and had a trial and he produced so many witnesses in the trial in the Cincinnati area that the judge threw out all the charges. He did not have to pay a fine or anything, but he was forbidden from that moment on to ever ever advertise that it was a benefit to your health. So he came up with a slogan, uh, the most pleasant taste, because the water tastes really good. In fact, I would say 99% of the people that come here get it just because of the way it tastes. They don't like chlorinated, heavily chemicaled water taste, and they like it. It's it's like rainwater. It's just kind of amazing. And so uh, he uh, was forbidden from making health claims after that particular uh, uh, session with the federal government. And because of that, the sales started to dwindle and people began to kind of not be too interested in it. Because, you know, they wanted to cure, like, you know, I can get water, you know, and I don't care about what it tastes like. And until the 19, late, well, really early 1970s. And there was a great resurgence of interest in bottled water and mineral water and spring water and all sorts of things, and it's like Perrier and all these others. Poland Spring, all these others just came on like you wouldn't believe. And so people started to come back and to get it, and it was completely by rumor and completely by word of mouth, and they would come and get water to drink just because they liked the way it tastes.
and uh, or as we say in Newmarket, tasties. And uh, it tastes good, which I've heard out there in the parking lot. So and uh, so I, I use that a lot of times. Like, how is it? It's like, oh, it tastes good. <laughs> and uh, uh, my, when after my grandfather died, my uncle ran it, and my uncle was not very ambitious and was uh, more interested in hunting and fishing and. Uh, watching ball games and, and having fun with his buddies and driving uh, 150 miles over to North Carolina to have country ham and driving 150 miles to come back. And he was a, he was a brilliant guy, but had a, a, a kind of an antisocial aspect about the way, and he didn't like the general public, but uh, he was not really interested in doing much with it. And he was involved in a terrible accident back in the early 70s. And then I started, uh, he never recovered from it. And uh, uh, he was just crippled. And uh, so I started running it. And so um, uh, he had to go into a nursing home. And uh, so I started running it. And I kind of couldn't believe the number of people that were back there and wanting to get water. And so I started uh, trying to fix it up trying to replace, the, the building was in really bad shape, and trying to re replace the, the, the actual plumbing and the, the, the pumping equipment and all of the stuff that was necessary to operate it. And it took a decade and uh, really a uh, tremendous amount of effort. And uh, mm -hmm. so it's kind of in the state that it is now after I kind of realized that I had uh, two other occupations uh, one working at Carson Newman University and then being a professional artist and needing the time to do that, that I couldn't just sit over there like my uncle did and like my grandfather did sometimes. And so I've figured out a way to make it run independently with not having enough, anybody there all the time. And uh, one of the Tennessee tax people uh, that came to uh, review the place uh, couldn't believe that I still, since 1973, operated it on, a, on an honor system. And I'm the only continuously operating successful business in Tennessee that runs on the honor system, according to them. Now there might be a peach orchard or something, you know, which, you know, uh, you have a basket and you go pick your own peaches or something and you leave a dollar. Uh, but to, you know, having actual uh, you know, to submit uh, state taxes and, and uh, income taxes and all this kind of stuff from the business. Uh, I was told by somebody once that I was the only successfully operating business in Tennessee that operated on the honor system. And there's no way to make change and there's a box that just comes out of the floor, it's quarter inch steel, embedded in concrete and I've actually had people wrap a chain around it and and go out to the parking lot and put it on their car and try to pull the box out of the floor and and they just sit there the tires just burning in the pavement and I've had other people over there try to cut the lock off and I've got it all figured out so they can't do that and uh, they were uh, I've had a lot of uh, uh, amateur very amateur theft attempts but uh, uh, they think that this box is just filled with money because it's about 
It's about three and a half feet tall. And I think the money just goes all the way down the, the floor and there's a chamber underneath it or whatever. But it's a little tiny thing like a half of a cigar box that's up on the top of it. And it, you know, it fills up with nickels and quarters and there's occasionally some bills in it. And I have people that uh, buy enormous quantities. I have one of uh, these brothers from Dayton, Ohio that drive down here every other month. And uh, they'll probably get about 350 gallons. And I've had people come from New Jersey and from Florida. And a lot of people come from Georgia, a lot of people from North Carolina, a lot of people from Eastern Kentucky. And, but the farthest distance that people come on a regular basis is Dayton, Ohio. And they come down and they get it for their family. And they have these big, huge containers with like, like Susie May written on the side or uh, Aunt Annie or like uh, 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 Kelly, and it's written on the side of these big blue plastic containers. And they will, I'll leave the place open for them at night and they stay open there, over there very, very late, and then they'll go to Shoney's. And, uh, and they love All that. Right. Oh, I'm calling time. Okay. The food is ready, so we should come eat. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and we've just heard from W.C. Houston, or Bill Houston, third-generation owner and operator of Houston's Mineral Oil, located in Newmarket, Tennessee. He just told us the story behind this community watering hole and Tennessee treasure. And you also just heard the voice of Krista Reese saying that it's time to eat there, And I recorded this back in 2015 when my husband and I visited them at their home. And Krista, Bill's wife, made this wonderful dinner for us all. And Krista is also a very talented food writer. And more information on her work from her website, KristaReese.com. And she spells that K-R-I-S-T-A-R-E-E-S-E. And like I mentioned, Bill Houston taught art for over 40 years at Carson Newman University, and he taught so many students, and what a great teacher he was. And he makes beautiful landscapes of Tennessee. He's a great artist as well. So I hope you enjoyed that story. You can find more information about Houston's Mineral Well easily on Facebook. And I've also placed a link and a picture of Bill in front of the well that I took many, many moons ago on my website at TennesseeFarmTable.com. I also have a link to Krista's website and Emmy Sunshine and Fred Sossman on there. Up next is Fred Sossman's Potluck Radio segment, which features this obscure sausage called Sautisa, made by Waldensians in Valdez, North Carolina. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Sausman. Valdez, North Carolina is the largest Waldensian settlement in North America. Waldensians started coming here in 1893 from northwestern Italy and southeastern France. They brought with them recipes for sautisa, a sausage spiced with black pepper, nutmeg, sometimes cinnamon and allspice, and always seasoned with garlic. I learned all about sautisa from the late Louis Benus in Valdez. The sautisa is a way that you don't waste anything. The Waldensian used to use the whole hog and everything, and they put in sautisa 
and you could you could save it that way. Sometimes they uh, put it in crocks, wrapped it around, and put lard in top, and uh, saved it that way. You could save it indefinitely. When they got married, Louis taught his wife Alberta how to cook sautisa. I guess maybe 60 years ago when I first married Louis, though I never knew what it was. We had sausage when I was growing up, but we didn't do it in casings like this. I put it in cold water with garlic and bay leaves and bring it up just to a boil and then turn it on low and simmer it. And then maybe the last 15 minutes, we put little red potatoes with the skin on them in the, in the water. And then when, we, when they are cooked, we take it all out and then drain it and we serve it that way. The Waldensians, what, what shapes us, I think, were grew up to be frugal. We didn't waste nothing. For Potluck Radio in Valdez, North Carolina, I'm Fred Saussman. This is Alan Benton, and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.